Chapter 2. The Lesson. I now come to the second branch of the text, which is the main thing, and the lesson itself. In whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. Here was a rare piece of learning indeed. That he knew how to adapt to every condition is to be even more amazed at in Paul more than all the learning in the world, which had been so applauded in former ages by Julius Caesar, Ptolemy, Xenophon, and other great admirers of learning. The text has just a few words in it. In whatsoever state, content. But if what Fulgentius once said is true, that the most golden sentence is measured by brevity and suavity, then this is a most accomplished speech. The text is like a precious jewel, little in quantity, but great in worth and value. The main proposition I will insist on is this. A gracious spirit is a contented spirit. The doctrine of contentment is supreme, and until we have learned this we have not learned to be Christians. It is a hard lesson. The angels in heaven had not learned it. They were not content. Though their estate was very glorious, they were still soaring aloft and aimed at something higher. The angels which kept not their first estate. Jude verse 6. They kept not their estate because they were not content with their estate. Our first parents, clothed with the white robe of innocence in paradise, had not learned to be content. They had ambitious hearts, and thinking their human nature too low and homespun, they wanted to be crowned with the deity, and be as gods. Genesis 3, 5. Though they had the choice of all the trees of the garden, none would content them but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they supposed would have been like eye salve to make them omniscient. Oh, if this lesson was so hard to learn in innocence, how hard will we who are impeded with corruption find it? It is of universal extent. This doctrine concerns everyone. It concerns rich people. One would think it needless to press those to contentment whom God has blessed with great estates, and instead need to persuade them to be humble and thankful. But I say, be content. Rich people have their discontent as well as others. When they have a great estate, they are discontented that they do not have more. They would make the hundred talents a thousand. As for an alcoholic, the more he drinks, the more he thirsts. Covetousness is a dry thirst. An earthly heart is like the grave that is never satisfied. Proverbs 30, 15-16. Therefore, I say to you who are rich, be content. There may be a few rich people who are content with their estates, but those few who have enough goods and riches do not have enough honor. If their barns are full enough, their turrets are not high enough. They desire to be somebody in the world, as Theudas, who boasted himself to be somebody. Acts 5.36. They are most cheerful when the wind of honor and applause fills their sails. If this wind dies down, they are discontent. One would think Haman had as much as his proud heart could desire. He was set above all the princes, on the pinnacle of honor, and advanced to be the second man in the kingdom. Esther 3, 1. Yet in the midst of all his pomp, because Mordecai would not remove his hat and kneel, he was discontented and full of wrath, and there was no way to assuage this pleurisy of revenge except by bleeding all the Jews and offering them up in sacrifice. The itch of honor 
is seldom allayed without blood. Therefore, I say to you who are rich, be content. If there are some rich people whom we may suppose to be content with their honor and magnificent titles, they often are not content with their families. She who lies in the bosom may sometimes blow the coals, as Job's wife, who, sulking, would have him fall out with God himself. Curse God and die. Job 2 9. Sometimes children cause discontent. How often do we see that the mother's milk nourishes a viper, and that he who once sucked her breast sets about to suck her blood? Parents often gather thorns of grapes and thistles of figs. Children are sweetbriar. They are like the rose, which is a fragrant flower, but has its thorns. Our relative comforts are not all pure wine, but mixed. They have in them more dregs than spirits, and are like that river Plutarch speaks of, where the waters in the morning run sweet, but in the evening run bitter. We have no charter of exemption granted us in this life. Therefore, rich people need to be called on to be content. The doctrine of contentment also concerns poor men. You who do drink so liberally from the breasts of providence, be content. It is a hard lesson. Therefore, it needs to be attacked sooner. How hard it is to be content when the livelihood is gone, a greatest state boiled away almost to nothing. The means of subsistence is in Scripture called our life because it is the very sinews of life. The woman in the Gospel of Luke spent all her living upon physicians. Luke 8.43. In the Greek, she spent her whole life on the physicians because she spent her means by which she lived. When poverty has clipped our wings, it is hard to be content. But even though it is hard, it is excellent. The apostle here had learned in every state to be content. God had brought Paul into as great a variety of conditions as ever we read of any man, and yet he was content, or else he could never have gone through it with so much cheerfulness. Look at all the difficulties into which this blessed apostle was cast. We are troubled on every side. There was the sadness of his condition, yet not distressed. There was his content in that condition. We are perplexed. There is his affliction, but not in despair. There is his contentment. 2 Corinthians 4 8. And if we read a little further, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, there is his trouble. 2 Corinthians 6 4 5. And see his contentment, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. 2 Corinthians 6 10. When the apostle was driven out of all, Regarding that sweet contentment of mind that was like music in his soul, he possessed all. A short chart or history of his sufferings tells us he was in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft, 2 Corinthians 11, 23-25, but observe the blessed form and temper of his spirit. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Whichever way that providence blew, he had such heavenly skill and dexterity that he knew how to steer his course. For his outward estate, he was indifferent. He could be either on the top of Jacob's ladder or at the bottom. He could sing either the dirge or the anthem. He could be anything that God would have him to be. 
I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Philippians 4:12. Here is a rare pattern for us to imitate. Paul, regarding his faith and courage, was like a cedar. He could not be stirred. But for his outward condition, he was like a reed bending every way with the wind of providence. When a prosperous gale did blow on him, he could bend with that. He knew how to be full. And when a boisterous gust of affliction blew, he could bend in humility with that. I know how to be hungry. Philippians 4:12. Paul was, as Aristotle would say, like a die that has four squares. Throw it any way you will, it falls on a bottom. Let God throw the apostle Paul any way he chooses, and he will land on contentment. A contented spirit is like a watch. Though you carry it up and down with you, the spring of it is not shaken, nor the wheels out of order. The watch keeps its perfect motion. So it was with Paul. Though God carried him into various conditions, he was not lifted up with the one, nor cast down with the other. The spring of his heart was not broken. The wheels of his affections were not disordered. They kept their constant motion toward heaven, still content. The ship that lies at anchor may sometimes be a little shaken, but never sinks. Flesh and blood may have its fears and uneasiness, but grace checks them. Having cast anchor in heaven, a Christian will never have his heart sink. A gracious spirit is a contented spirit. This is a rare art. Paul did not learn it at the feet of Gamaliel. He said, I am instructed. Philippians 4 12. I am initiated into this holy mystery. It is as if he had said, I have gotten the divine art, I have the knack of it. God must make us genuine artists. If we put you to an art that you are not skilled in, how unfit would you be for it? Put a farmer to painting portraits or drawing pictures, what strange work would he make? This is out of his sphere. Would you take an artist who is exact in laying of colors and put him to plow or set him to planting or grafting of trees? This is not his art. He is not skilled in it. Tell a natural man to live by faith, and when all things go crossways, to be content. You told him do what he has no skill in. You may as well tell a child to guide the stern of a ship. To live contented on God in the deficiency of outward comforts is an art that flesh and blood has not learned. Even many of God's own children, who excel in some spiritual disciplines, when they come to this of contentment, how they do bungle! They have scarcely begun to master this art. To illustrate this doctrine, I will propose and answer some questions. Can a Christian be aware of and sensitive to his condition and be content? Yes. If not, he is a Stoic, not a saint. Rachel did well to weep for her children. That was natural, but her fault was that she refused to be comforted, Jeremiah 31, 15, and that was discontent. Christ Himself was aware when He sweat great drops of blood and said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet He was content and sweetly submitted His will to the Father's. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as Thou wilt. Matthew 26, 39. The Apostle tells us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. 1 Peter 5, 6. Which we cannot do 
unless we are sensitive to it. Can a Christian lay open his grievances to God and still be content? Yes. Jeremiah wrote, Unto thee have I opened my cause. Jeremiah 20, 12. And David poured out his complaint before the Lord. Psalm 142, 2. We may cry to God and desire Him to write down all our injuries. Should not the child cry out to his father? When any burden is on the spirit, prayer gives relief and eases the heart. Hannah's spirit was burdened. I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. 1 Samuel 1.15. After having prayed and wept, she went away and was no longer sad. 1 Samuel 1.18. Here is the difference between a holy complaint and a discontented complaint. In the one we complain to God, in the other we complain of God. What does contentment properly exclude? There are three things that contentment banishes out of its province and cannot by any means exist with. 1. It excludes angry complaining. This is the daughter of discontent. I mourn in my complaint. Psalm 55, 2. David does not say, I murmur in my complaint. Murmuring is no better than mutiny in the heart. It is a rising up against God. When the sea is rough and agitated, it throws out nothing but foam. When the heart is discontent, it casts out the foam of anger, impatience, and sometimes little better than blasphemy. Murmuring is nothing else but the scum that boils off from a discontented heart. 2. It excludes an uneven disorientation, as when someone says he is in such distress that he doesn't know how to evolve or get out, that he is devastated when his head and heart are so preoccupied that he is not fit to pray or meditate, that he is not himself. Just as when an army is routed, one man runs this way and another that, and the whole army is put into disorder, so when our thoughts run up and down distracted, discontent dislocates and disjoints the soul. It pulls off the wheels. And three, it excludes a childish despondency and this is usually a consequence of the other. If we have an unsettled mind and do not know in which direction to turn or what to do to get out of our present trouble, we begin to faint and sink under it. For care and worry are to the mind as a burden to the back. It loads the spirits and with overloading sinks them. A despondent spirit is a discontented spirit. Having asked and answered these questions, I will next describe this contentment.